0: Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Brian O'Neill, MD, F-A-C-E-P. throwing an F-A-H-A on top of that. Uh, he's Professor Wayne State University School of Medicine and is also the Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine um, as well. So we are actually here at the first conference that I have attended in person um, since, well, one year ago, almost exactly one year ago. And we're in person here, and what you'll find is that more conferences are gonna take place, not because, well, it is because we're very interested in getting together, but also the hotels and conference centers aren't interested in allowing people to cancel anymore. Uh, everybody, everybody was generous last year. This year, uh, this year things are gonna happen. So um, we're here, and I was looking through the talks, and I thought, man, this is a great uh, look into things. Dr. O'Neill talked about the update to the AHA out-of-hospital cardiac arrest um, guidelines as well as a few other things. So Dr. O'Neill, thanks for joining us here on the front line on a relatively cool, but otherwise weather nice park City evening. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So give us a little idea. What are, what's, what's new? What's shaken? How, how are we refreshing the AHA for this year?
1: Well, you know, I got to tell you, Ryan, it, uh, there weren't major changes to what we did. We kind of refined some small areas to uh, emphasize other things. And then we kind of you know, you know, the thing is, when you write these guidelines, but the guidelines need to be based on significant literature. And let's face it, a lot of things that we do, like double sequential defibrillation or use of beta blockers, post-cardiac arrest, there's not a lot of data on that. So uh, often what we'll do is we either look for similar conditions, so cardiogenic shock or, um, you know, refractory VF in the, in the cath lab and see whether or not there's data that, that we can pull over and use it. The physiology stays the same between the two of them. Um, not huge changes here, but I think there's real emphasis that we need to make uh, to improve us moving forward.
0: A lot of it is, you know, we, we focus so much over the last number of years on the high performance, high quality CPR as the key to successful ROSC. And not, not just ROSC, I mean, for so long we use ROSC as the, as the measuring tape of success, but really with a patient-oriented outcome, or as Dr. Ken Milne calls it, a poo, you, you have, um, it's the survival to discharge with intact neurologic function. Um, and so there's been a lot of focus with hands-only CPR and those types of things over the last number of years, especially with the public to get over the, the taboo of doing um, contacted or, or mouth-to-mouth uh, type resuscitations. Of course, that became even more taboo during COVID-19. How has that shift happened, you know, over the last number of years? And, and has, have we seen the outcomes that, that show that those, those recommendations were substantiated?
1: well, we certainly have I, I can nationally the data is a little bit more sketchy, but I can certainly tell you our experience from Detroit. Um, in two thousand and two, we had a discharge from hospital rate of zero point two percent alive. Uh, now we are, uh, and a lot of that was because of bystander CPR, bystander CPR rates were in the thirteen to fourteen um, percent. now we're up at about forty to forty three percent. Uh, survival discharge is right about 8%, which is close to the national average, but not quite there. And with about uh, three quarters of those being neurologically intact with the CPC one or two, but I think Ryan, really what I want to talk about is I, I think that it, it's, uh, to to take something like your example, like um, hands-only CPR, and say that uh, that it, it it's going to improve neurologic function, is difficult because there's so many things that happen between uh, the bystander doing good CPR or some BLS or ALS doing CPR to the patient being discharged. Um, the analogy I use at, at the talk is so. Um, So we looked at epinephrine. Epinephrine has been a big thing, you know, Oh, epinephrine, we're just we're just uh, uh, filling nursing homes with that. First of all, that's not true. We know that use of use of epinephrine increases ROSC by about 40 percent. That's the key. I mean, this is here to start the. it's here to start the heart. So um, the analogy is I put a new battery in my car, but geez, the engine doesn't run well. Well, that had nothing to do with it. And, and, and I really think, and this is one of the things I emphasized in the talk, was that so um, there are things we need to do up front to have ROSC. There are things we need to uh, do up front uh, to try to improve the outcomes. But it's really where I think we've fallen down is is the post Ros care taken to the cath lab with STEMI, uh, um, if they have cardiac concussion and their, their cardiac output's down to, to try and bridge the heart um, uh, using an impella, uh, all those things. You know, there was no protocolization, particularly for the two large epinephrine trials. There was no protocolization post this intervention. It was a simple intervention, and then boom, we handed off to everybody, and they continued to do what they wanted to do. So there was nothing on the back end, and we know that the number one uh, cause of death post cardiac arrest is withdrawal of life support, and so that continued on the on on the back end. And uh, really, what I emphasize, I think we've done really well on the front end, Um, not only for high quality CPR, like you mentioned, but also for dispatch assisted CPR, the no, no, go, uh, no, not responsive, no, not breathing normally, go, meaning start CPR. And that was one of the recommendations that came out, you know, the, 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 the juice, the squeeze. So um, uh, the risk, the benefit for doing CPR on somebody in that, in that position, not responsive, not breathing normally is so, so low. So the fact is we, we tell them to start CPR, maybe, but we know that if you do bystander CPR on these patients, you're going to get a fourfold increase in these patients actually um, being discharged from hospital. So I think it's something we need to get aggressive and upfront with, but I think we need to be smart about the outcomes. Um, if we're not controlling everything all the way it's very difficult to to apply a single a single uh, intervention to an outcome like neurologic outcome because it's it's there's many things that happen in between that
0: it doesn't live in a vacuum none of the interventions that we use in cardiac arrest live by itself i mean you do have to look at that longitudinal care model of of that patient and of course you, you hit on really the most important thing is that one is recognized early and that two people take action because even in the best EMS settings, you're still talking about several minutes and each minute that ticks by is a significant decrease in likelihood of survival and recovery. Um, so, you know, of course the data that's out there on um, your outcomes, if you, if you go down in a public setting versus if you go down at home, if you go down in the day during versus going down at night, you know, all of those variables that go into the likelihood of recovery, and that importance and a lot of strategies that have taken place and there's a there's apps out there now you know calling people who know CPR in an area to to, to respond um, yeah. to help with hands only I mean we're well, not only hands only but just with ACLS and BLS type responses and now in EMS as well and that was actually became a huge topic during uh, COVID-19 was when LA County started talking about you know we're going to start running our codes most of our codes not transporting and running them from home well that's not something because of COVID. I mean, we've, most EMS agencies, including my own, have been moving more towards a staying at the scene, if it's safe and otherwise conducive, to be able to do the work and do the high-performance CPR and do the interventions that are necessary instead of the interruptions that take place in transport. And I think that's something that needs to be educated as well, that, you know, as, as we move more and more to the point of care for our patients, you know, being meeting them where they are, and doing what we can there, you know, we're going to see a a shift um, in the way that we do, we handle out of hospital cardiac, uh, out of hospital cardiac arrest. Has there been any recommendations changed or anything that you've seen in terms of those scenes of care um, as, as we make these evolutions through HA's guidelines? So it did make it to the guidelines, but you're spot on,
1: Um, you know, and it's all about timing. So there was a large study that came out uh, through the ROC consortium and looked at uh, the factors that uh, predict um, ROSC. And they looked through many different things and exactly what you had said. So that um, the stay in play. Uh, so work on scene to the point you get ROSK. Not only not only after you get ROSC, but you want you want to make sure they're stabilized. You don't want to throw them in the back of an ambulance and have them re on you. So you get ROSK, you stabilize them, and then you transport. But there's only two groups when they looked at the rock that were there were that uh, were non-significant, meaning that uh, that you probably you may want to transport early instead of staying and playing. And those two groups were BLS only. And those that didn't have mechan- mechanical CPR. So the mechanical CPR is a big thing because you, you can't, you can't do good CPR on the back of a rig. Um, so uh, if you have that, and the other problem with BLS is that if you're working, um, you know, non-shockable rhythms, you're basically doing CPR with nothing else on top of it. There's, there's no background to that. Um, so those, those are the two groups in particular in Detroit that we, that we struggle with and, um, uh, to move forward, we don't have mechanical support, uh, and we run a lot of BLS. I think we're running seventy plus percent BLS. So uh, those those two things hit home to me. So when I, when you brought that up, uh, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, stay, uh, get ROSC, Make sure they're stabilized. Transport. Uh, if you do if you do anything other than that, uh, the,
0: the mortality was was much higher. And the interesting aspect you mentioned the mechanical cpr the devices that are out there right now and you know in certain certain people within the ems world um, physicians within the ems world are against the aspect of mechanical uh, cpr not only just because they say it's not necessarily better but just because of the application time and i think that has a lot to do with your training of your crews and the amount of time you're going to be working them because from my standpoint in my in my agency i see the mechanical cpr device as not necessarily um, an, a better alternative from, you know, from the beginning, but it, to me, it's better for crew, uh, crew resource management, allocation of resources, um, because we do know that, that your physical performance, we're all human, deteriorates pretty quickly, and not to mention the fact that most of our EMS personnel, many are working 24-hour shifts, and so we wipe them out in the first hour with a 30-minute resuscitation then there's potential complications down the road with the fact that they're now physically exhausted as well. And so, you know, I see a fit and I understand some of the arguments that are there, but also understand, especially in austere environments um, in areas where you have smaller crews, smaller agencies, where the mechanical CPR is gonna be Literally a lifesaver, just because of that ability for those crews to be able to continue with the other interventions and that need to take place. Now, the key for any EMS agency out there is to make sure that you have the training that you have everybody is very well trained and expertise at how to apply that quickly to minimize that disruption of chest compressions during that time. You know, the most they say 10 to 15 seconds, but at the same time, if you're not well trained, it could be well over that, especially if it's misplaced. Uh, but that is a, a, I think, a great resource, especially in a lot of areas. Now, you mentioned, right as we started off at the top, that you actually talk about one of the big hot topics within medicine now. It became really sexy for a while. This double sequential, um, you know, defibrillation, and you know, you got two of them there. And I've actually done it once or twice, and. Really, it was before I started hearing, you know, the threats and concerns about the potential of canceling warranties and do you actually get past the protective mechanism of the actual other device and all that other stuff that's involved. Um, What are your thoughts on double sequential? So,
1: so we don't have all the data on that. You know, that, you know, it's, it's under the more is better, right? If, uh, if some is good, more is better. Um. So when you look at the data in total, uh, it doesn't show that double sequential defibrillation actually is significantly better. However, um, there is data that came out of... came out of Canada, uh, uh, Sheldon Chensky's uh, data. So there were three groups that they looked at. And I and I think this is really probably where we should be thinking as we move forward. So everybody started with AP, so uh, right chest, uh, um, um, left left thorax. So what we do with our, A, it, not AP, do our, our standard precordial placement. Um, the one group stayed at the standard precordial placement, and they they shocked as it went through. The second group is if they didn't receive, if they didn't have uh, return to ROSC or at least um, um, stop stopped the fibrillation, um, they would go AP. So they would they would take the pads and they would go AP, and then the third group was they already had they already had their precordials on, and then they went AP, and that was the double sequential. When they looked at the data, um, the vector change, so really going AP instead of going precordial on these patients was as effective as the double sequential defibrillation. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, if if we're thinking about this, we're trying to capture the heart in between this arc and people don't place them quite right, and, you know, and body just change, and it's very difficult to really, you know, to capture the heart there. But their, their resuscitation rates, or at least, I really think, it, like many things, the thing that was most important for this is, is the um, termination of fibrillation, or VTAC, or pulseless VT. When you looked at that, it was actually a little bit better for objector change than it was for double-sequential defibrillation. 80 versus 76, and, and it, was, it was in those numbers. So I I think that um, for double sequential, I, I'm going to tell you if I was going to do this, this is how I would do it. If they were if they were over the precordium, the next thing I would do I'd go AP, and if that didn't work, I'd go double sequential. And the key with the double sequential is you don't hit them at the same time because that will void your warranty because you're going to fry one of them. One of them's going to lose. It's it, when they did this study, which was w- very well done. Um, it was one provider hit one, hit another, so that, uh, that they, weren't, they weren't going off at the same time. And we know that we're using dual sequential anyways, right? So it's boom, boom, shock, 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 shock. And the whole idea is that it, that first shock will significantly de- decrease the impedance in the chest so the second shock will become more effective. Um, I'm going to tell you that if you're in that position, there, uh, there is, there's absolutely no evidence that you're going to do harm um, but there's also no absolute evidence that you're going to have uh, improve outcomes so i that would be my modality i would change the vector first and then i would go to the double sequential because you can actually change the vector uh, shock them while you're looking for the next uh, defibrillator because i don't know about your unit but we usually you only have one per space there so usually somebody has to track the other one down
0: and you mentioned the the whole idea and that, that was one of the important parts everybody thought you had to do them at the same time because you're going to depolarize and reset the heart at the same time but you know these these devices are designed to protect themselves from shorting out and the, the the current going back but they they let down that guard briefly while you're defibrillating and if you do that double sequential you may actually take advantage of that hole in the wall uh, of that uh, gap in the protection and, and fry your machine, as you mentioned, and, and none of them are cheap. I mean, ultrasounds are getting cheap, defibrillators are not getting cheap, um, and so so it's more of a double sequential staggered um, type approach or boom boom uh, type approach to things. And and you know I think that it'll be interesting research, especially with the American body habitus getting the way it is. Um, you know, sometimes there's just there's just en- just not enough light switches for the house to run, and so you just gotta you know, figure out how you're going to get more power in there. And that'll be interesting research to come through um, as we move forward. Now, some of the things you actually talked about during your discussion um, was also some of the post-ROSC care. And, you know, of course, now we have debates on uh, on euthermia, you know, the, the therapeutic hypothermia versus euthermia. You have the aspect of what we're going to do. You mentioned the shock heart aspect of things, but also you actually talked about the use of beta blockers post-arrest. Give us us a little insight into that thought and whether it's got a position in our practice.
1: Well, so where this started, and this is a
0: discussion that
1: happens, when you look at a lot of the basic science literature, particularly um, uh, the animal labs, Often um, people put in their cocktail beta blockers, not so much during the the VF or VT, but post VFVT, and it was all about to decrease the beta effect, and particularly to decrease the effect of epinephrine. We know that epinephrine uh, increases myocardial oxygen demand. Uh, it, it increases uh, your shunt, and it also uh, it also increases it decreases your uh, it in- it decreases your fibrillation threshold. So when you when you throw those on a patient who's in fib, it's not always the best combination to move forward. Um, People have looked at um, beta blockade, so there's very few studies in humans. There almost uh, there are really no studies in humans, but there are some case series in humans. But there's a lot in, in the animal literature, and you know they played a lot with alpha versus beta. Is it straight alpha that you want? Do you want alpha, with a little bit of beta, or do I give epinephrine and, and a beta blockade shortly afterwards? Um, the data shows that if you do use a beta blocker. Um, uh, if you use it inter-arrest, uh, some of the animal studies have shown that they you do have an improvement in uh, shocking them out of uh, VF or pulses VT. But if you use a beta blocker post-arrest, at least in the animal literature, most of them use propranolol, shows that those patients, um, those patients, uh, those animals um, had significantly less myocardial dysfunction and actually resuscitation rate was better and long-term survival was better. And I think it, when you really look at it, it makes sense that, um, so I'm stopping sort of this, so whether I... I give exogenous catacols or if i just have endogenous catacols all of those they're very very high during cardiac arrest and the post-cardiac dysfunction is just amazing i don't know if you have uh, you ever done open house you know, open heart massage on somebody and i give epinephrine mm-hmm. yes is it in my days?
0: academic days academic yeah days. so the difference
1: in the heart once you give the epinephrine is just amazing. It gets tight, it gets stiff. You know, it goes into a mild tetany when you give the epinephrine, um, and that's exactly what happens. We go into a mild tetany, and we have uh, you know that kind of post-concussive phase that happens afterwards. And if there's something I could do, you know, epinephrine there to restart the heart. I increase the coronary perfusion pressure. Uh, I, I recruit more myocytes. Boom. Then I can shock you out of a uh, out of a rhythm. Um, but there's ill effects afterwards. Uh, increased myocardial uh, consumption, the, the, the myocardial dysfunction, post-cardiac arrest. I mean, we've all seen this. It's horrid. Uh, what are you supposed to do? I got a heart that's kind of a stone heart, and uh, it's not pumping much. What am I supposed to do now? Um, and then that you know, that's when you call your cardiologist to try and bridge you. Question is, would you would would a beta blocker work there? I think we're not quite to the point of doing that. And if you, I was going to use a beta block, beta block I wouldn't use Preparinol. I'd use something I could turn on and off if I got in trouble like Esmol. Um But I, I, I really think that what you first have to ask yourself, particularly in the data that came out from Dimitri Shinopoulos um, that showed that, you know, he had these patients in VF for a long time, I mean, 30, 40, 60 minutes, put them on a mechanical CPR device took him to the cath lab, opened up the corneas over there. If that didn't work, you know, he'd put him right on ECMO. He had a, for these prolonged VF patients, he had a 46% discharge from hospital rate with 40% of them being, not 40% of the 46, but 40% of the total having good neurologic outcomes. So, so I think that's, and, and that has not been delineated in the literature. So I think you really have to figure out whether or not you think this is electricity or you think this is this is a problem with plumbing. Um, and I think that would be my differentiation point is, uh, as I started, I started looking at which, what would be my next modality for this refractory via.
0: And we know that, I mean, that post, that post arrest, that ROSC period, the heart's already grumpy. I mean, it's already got, I mean, of course, unless you've got a reversible cause that you've reversed, you know, whatever that main source is, you know, sometimes it's just the uh, the arrhythmia itself but you know more than likely often it's it's going to be something else involved as well as you mentioned with the prolonged refractory V fib with getting in cleaning out vessels and, and getting them scented it open and then uh, resolving at that point Um but i, I think that's a big time for everybody because I, I had a code last week you know and, after, and afterwards you know the heart's just kind of all over the place it's you know you put the ultrasound on it's hypodynamic Um it's just kind of sitting there just throwing all kinds of ectopy. I mean, the heart is just throwing, it's it's, it's the it's the five year old in the aisle of the grocery store, just throwing a hell of a tantrum. And it is just, you just, all you want to do is get out of there and, you know, get your kid to behave. But you know, the more you actually intervene, the more the grumpier the kids get. Of course, when you start correcting the pH, you know, a lot of that epinephrine starts kicking in even further. So now you've got that, uh, that increased state that you're talking about. And is there, you know, anything that's evolved in terms that you mentioned, you know, that maybe we may be looking at some of the beta blocker interventions. And I I completely agree with the idea of an Esmolol or something like that versus a propranolol. When I'm doing anything like that where it's, you know, either way I want to be able to turn it off very quickly. Um, You know, something that if, oh crap, that that didn't, the body didn't like that, you know, being able to just shut it off as opposed to say, well, it'll get better in six hours or four hours, two hours, whatever. But is there is there is there anything else that's evolving in that post arrest period um, that's that's we've had a lot of kind of anecdotal experimental recommendations, some pushed some pulled back Um, anything changing from that standpoint.
1: Well, I think, I think one of the major thing is, is that, uh, so not exactly in cardiac arrest, but certainly in cardiogenic shock, they've talked about unloading the left ventricle. So to use an impella device or something else unloads that unloads the left ventricle, quite frankly, Ryan, right? the, the right ventricle seems to be the key in all this. If the right ventricle has significant dysfunction, it's, it's a um, predictor, at least in the cardiogenic shock trial. Uh, that those patients aren't going to do well so you really need both ventricles but if we expand the literature from cardiogenic shock which is certainly is certainly the same physiology as post risc um that these patients uh these patients with some sort of device some uh, uh, unloading of the heart or augmentation of the heart like with a a uh, balloon pump uh, is a, is a great idea um because we can bridge the heart the, the brain we can't bridge um Uh, so the brain, uh, I'm a brain guy. So the bridge, the heart is only around to keep the brain alive as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I, I think there's something there. I think we need to get more aggressive. And, you know, when you talk to your cardiologist, they're going to talk to you about the COAC trial and say, well, the COAC trial was negative. So if they don't have a STEMI, I don't need to take those patients to the cath lab. Um, same trial that came That that trial that was stopped early also to no benefit. But the problem is this, Ryan, uh, one of the studies excluded everybody in cardiogenic shock or excluded patients that had refractory arrhythmias. And in the COAC trial, in in the non-interventional trial, there were 25% of those patients that crossed over to the invention trial for two reasons. One, they had refractory arrhythmias and two, that they were in cardiogenic shock. So Obviously, the, cardi- the cardiologist believes that if he intervenes on those two things, that he actually is going to make a difference. Uh, I think that's uh, every emergency physician needs to put that in their back pocket because they have not studied the group that we're talking about. They've studied it. So when a trial, it shows you that if you have a stable patient who is non-stevy, they probably could be cathed later. That's probably
0: true. What's interesting is we sit here, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the room, but you're, you're sitting out on the balcony. And, I am uh,
1: on the balcony. Yeah, yeah,
0: just just through the evolution of this podcast, we've gone from daylight to sunset. Your entire <laughs> everything behind you has disappeared. Now all I can see is the outline of your face, the outline of your the the okay. logo on your shirt. That uh, it's it's a sign. It's it's a thing that the curtain is coming down on this particular episode of the podcast because it is now nighttime um, in the uh, in the Wasatch here in Park City, Utah. So I lo- love the conversation. We uh, actually probably took it on on longer than actually the the talk itself uh, because it's, um, you know, you were the first night we were here, and uh, I really appreciate the time. And uh, any take-home messages? And then finally, also, how can folks get in touch with you if they have any questions or thoughts?
1: So the take-home messages are this. So it does start with good CPR, quality CPR. It really starts with somebody starting CPR. Quality CPR is there. Let's face it. If we're not doing good CPR, all the medications we give and everything else we do are not going to help. Uh, I, IV before IO, I uh, and I think really the key now is we have, we have done as much as well, we've done significant. We made significant uh, inroads into the pre-hospital phase. The hospital phase is the next phase that we really need to spend our time and energies on because I think that's where we're losing these patients as they come in. Um, uh, neural prognostication, delay it. Uh, it should really be start 72 hours from normal thermia. Uh, there is no evidence that shows that anything other than continued seizures uh, or a significant trivial edema shows any poor outcome in those patients. So neural prognostication, uh, a multimodality, modality use of neuroprognostication, 72 hours from normal thermia, uh, is a key. And, um, and I think, you know, I got to tell you, this is, we own we own cardiac resuscitation. Uh, um, emergency medicine owns cardiac resuscitation because we see it more than anybody else. And I think we have two things that we own, EMS and cardiac resuscitation. And I think we really need to be driving this as we move forward.
0: Absolutely agree. How can folks get in touch with you if they have any oh. questions? Oh, them? I'm sorry.
1: So uh, please... Email, so it's B-O-N-E-I-L at med.wayne.edu. I'd love to talk to you. I think this is uh, this is an area that needs a lot of uh, discussion. There's a blogosphere out there, let's face it. It's not always the blogosphere is uh, is 100% right, although I gotta tell you, some of them are, are, are spot on. Um, yes, please, I, I'd love to continue the conversation. Um, uh, this is a very important area, and I think, you know, this is, this is, this is an area we own.
0: The, uh so recording from the emergencies and emergency medicine conference actually happens here in park city usually uh, in the march window each year and then there's actually another conference as well in hawaii and maui so you know there's another opportunity for some great conversations great conferences out there discussions and topics you know from everything from you know how fast to push down blood pressure to out of hospital cardiac arrest so i did a talk on motorsport so it's a little bit of anything and everything and so it's a great opportunity and it was i really appreciate you setting aside some time after your day on the slopes there at alta uh, to come and talk to us tonight
1: oh thanks for having me really appreciate it ryan
0: and as for me you can contact me you are at everydaymedicine at gmail.com or rstanton at g- I want to get this all messed up <laughs> i was you are everydaymedicine at gmail.com i still am but for this podcast, if you want to contact me, send it to rstanton at asap.org. rstanton at asap.org. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you like. Like us on Facebook, and then follow along at Everyday Med on Twitter as well. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.